WBZ Chicago in a hesitant compromise. This is Pleasure Town. In the late 1800s, two visionaries claimed a parcel of Oklahoma land. They had a dream to build a community for pleasure seekers. Before long, the settlement grew into a sanctuary for outlaws and artists. But after flourishing, it fell. Now, decades later, the town lies buried in the red dirt, and not even death can silence the residents' stories. So put on your headphones and hear their tales as we take measure of Pleasure Town. That fire gutted us, Si. And I'm not just talking about what it did to the settlement. I mean the spirit of Pleasure Town. Yeah, it's an odd and hollowing thing to see your dream literally burned to the ground, Claude. It truly is. Pushed me inside myself. Drove you to more drink. Because we were consumed with ourselves, we didn't have the fortitude to rebuild. But, lucky for us, others stepped up in our stead. My inspiration was accidental. It was more out of necessity for the townspeople. Think of what would have happened if they just sat idly by. Death. Quick and sudden. Perhaps not for the people, but definitely for the town. Fire can be a cleanse. It purges the old to make way for the new. But in the purging, it destroys. It engulfs. Forever hungry. Always wanting more until it eats up so much it has nothing left to burn. And then, it withers away. Slowly. Growing smaller. Growing weaker. Until nothing but an ember fragment of a memory of what it once was. Four horses, a chicken coop, Jeb and Eli's barbershop. Jeb. A kettle. Still in pretty good shape, too. Just a few dings. Put it in the wagon. Oh, a kettle. Well, let's all have a spot of tea, shall we? Mr. Ledoux, sir, I understand this might be a hard reality to face, but taking account of what was lost and what we still have is an important administrative duty. Did we lose the last shot saloon? No. That's on the east part of town. The west is what burned. Well, maybe I should go over there and do some administrative inspecting. You know... Make sure there's no smoke damage. Sir, you are the mayor of the town. The people spoke, and they chose you to lead, and I suggest that you at least make an effort to show some compassion. Fine. Let's see. Uh... Oh, well, would you look at that? I found me a hammer. Put that in your wagon and smoke it. I'll note the hammer as well as the whiskey on your breath. It's just my breath. Now, old sad-eyed Cyrus over there, that one is the one you should be talking to. Just look at him. And on the bleached bones, red clay brought forth. Gone. Well, I'm worried about him. It's all gone. The vision. Ah, don't be 
a dream. I've known the man longer than you. It's He's always gone. been as confused as a heifer in a cornfield. Yes, sir. To summarize the damage done, we've lost Ernie's pharmacy, two automobiles, 152 beds, three stables, Miss Everly's collection of oriental art, Mr. Everly's collection of rifles, 21 dogs, 37 cats. We know the fire started on the grounds of the schoolhouse. That's all we know. Inside the schoolhouse, we found the charred and gnarled remains of Carl, the reporter. But none of us for a minute thought he did it. Oh, it was arson. I'd bet my life on it, if I weren't already dead. But who the arsonist was, no one ever found out. On the night of the fire, I was in the town hall, filling out stacks of paperwork by lamplight. Claude was drunk and slouched over on a rocking chair in the corner. His snoring body caused the chair to rock back and forth, giving him the appearance of a bloated, bearded baby being swayed to sleep. And in a way, he was a baby. I cared for him as a parent cares for a child, removing his shoes and ushering him to bed when he was too drunk to walk, cleaning up the broken glass when he clumsily knocked over a bottle changing his trousers when he soiled them in his stupor. Cyrus, meanwhile, was in the library. That's where he lived. Most never saw him, especially after he lost the mayoral election. He just shut himself up amongst all those books. His friends, as he liked to refer to them. Sometimes I'd pass, a telegram in my hand addressed to Mr. Hobbs. And before I'd open the door, I'd hear talking not just muttering, actual conversing, but there was always just one voice. Back in the town hall, I looked up from my desk and looked out the west-facing window. There was a light on the horizon. Were my eyes fooling me? Had the sun reversed its course, wandering back the way it came like a patron returning to the bar after he forgot his hat? And then I saw the glow jump and grow. It was no longer a dot. It was now a dash. And soon, it grew into a line. Fire! Fire! What? Mr. Ah. Ledoux! Fire on the horizon! We had a fire once. In the barn. Western Quarter's burning! Quarter and a sixpence. Sing the song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye. Mr. Ledoux, do something! The town is in danger. People's lives are in danger. You sit here. And you yell at me? You yell at me like you're my boss? I ain't got no boss. Seeing as Claude was too far gone to be of any use, I ran to the library to alert Cyrus. Mr. Hobbs! Mr. Hobbs, it's me, Skippy! Mr. Hobbs! Yes, yes, what business have you come to me Mr. with? Mr. Hobbs, there's a fire. The western quarter is burning. The blaze is covering the horizon. Mayor Ledoux is not well enough to handle this. As Cyrus took in the news, his face started to twist up and the corners of his mouth tightened. And then, from behind the glasses of his wireframes, I saw tears begin to stream down his stretch of nose. And before I knew it, 
He was sobbing. Without another word, he closed the door. Mr. Hobbs! Mr. Hobbs, you've got to help! The town is burning! Your town is burning! But he never left the library that night. A couple dozen fishing poles, a rowboat, three wedding dresses. You know, maybe that fire was a good thing. Relieves all these people of all their junk. These people have nothing. No homes. No possessions of any kind. They are literally patching together makeshift shelters with what little scraps they have. Now the sneaking serpent walks in mild humility. And the just man rages in the wild, where lions roam. What's that, Sai? Don't you see? It's so obvious. <laughs> it always has been. Heaven and hell. Water and fire. Right. So, uh, Skippy. How much more of this surveying we got? I'm starting to feel the shakes coming on. How about you take Mr. Hobbs back to the library? This may be the longest he's been outside of its walls for some time, and I fear the excitement is taking its toll. Then you can go along and have a drink. Sounds like a good plan. You keep, uh, uh, keep doing what you're doing. And if anyone needs anything... Make sure they get it. I want to keep my people happy. And with that, Claude left. Of course, we had no resources with which to aid our citizens. There was no emergency fund. There were no funds at all. Despite the time that had passed since Claude and Cyrus first started talking finances, nothing had been done. Claude was too busy living in the now, and Cyrus was too busy worrying about the what-ifs. I decided I had done enough surveying for one day. There would be plenty more days to pick through the rubble. After all, who was there to clean it up? The displaced would come to pick it over like wolves on a deer carcass, gathering up everything down to the nails that held in the floorboards. As I turned to leave, I tripped on a pile of debris. When I looked down, I could see a wooden sign, scorched almost beyond legibility. But underneath the soot, I could still make out the carved lettering. It read, Welcome to Pleasure Town, a place to go after you're happy. Pleasure Town will return in a moment. If we had our wits about us, if we weren't shackled by depression... Do you think we could have done more for the shanty folk? Sure. 
But the question is, would it have been enough? Yeah, probably not. Which left the gate wide open for Enid. For better, or for worse. Those weeks, after the fire, are the hardest to look back on. Not only did I find myself saddled with the unexpected burden of leadership, I was still learning how to live after being cut in half. My brother Jebediah, my twin soul, had stood right next to me in front of the barbershop we owned together. We felt the waves of heat as the flame swallowed it whole. Just a stone's throw from the schoolhouse where the blaze began, weeks without rain and the wind at its back, our shop was doomed to succumb. All we could do is stand at a distance and witness. But my brother, the only kin I had left in this world, ran back into the shop without a word of explanation. And he never came out. In the aftermath of the fire, I needed to occupy myself. I sought out others who had lost everything. There were scores of us, and our immediate needs were staggering. We built temporary shelters and put up tents until such time as real help would arrive. We scavenged through charred wood, gathered blankets and canvas. I dug, lifted and carried anything that could be cobbled together to protect us from the elements. I helped families organize into group camps and divided chores among the fit and the able so that the injured could rest. By the time the doctor arrived asking where to begin, everyone looked to me to answer. I didn't think of myself as a leader, more like a living index. I knew where each family was camped and who needed what. I took time to sit with them and ask their names and their stories. We were all wounded and raw, but we did our best to lift each other when we could. Not long after the fire, the town clerk dropped off a wagon full of scavenged items. I was heartened to see him coming from a ways off. Finally, the town was helping. But his embarrassed handshake, downcast eyes, and hasty departure soured the goodwill of his offering. What he didn't say said everything. Nobody else was coming. No relief. I did not realize how much I expected help from our neighbors until the possibility vanished. I'll give Miss Enid Wallace this. Not only did she know how to make an entrance, she knew when. The discovery of our abandonment was still fresh when she arrived on a second wagon being driven by her man, Mr. Goose. They pulled as close to my tent as they could, and she hopped down on her own, making her way directly to me. Elijah! I am glad to have found you. I'm Enid Wallace. I'm... Wallace Railway Company. I've heard of you. Ah, well, excellent. 
Mr. Goose, don't wait on me. Please get started. Begging your pardon, Miss Wallace. Some blankets and clean clothes, some food, and even a few plugs of tobacco. It is the best I could do on short notice, but I hope it will suffice as you all recover. I was speechless. Here we were, practically invisible to our own town, and this outsider arrives at just the right moment with... with provisions? I couldn't help but begin portioning out the items in my mind, working through who needed what the most, but another thought crowded its way in. This was too easy. Miss Wallace, not that we're ungrateful by any stretch, but why are you doing this? Do you need these things? They wouldn't go unused. Then I'm happy to oblige. I can already guess that the amount of help you've received from your town government could fit on my pinky finger. The truth of her frankness stung, yet I could not deny her statement. In one swoop, she had outshone the whole town, and from the size of those crates. Well, a lot of families could be happier and healthier if I played this right. Let the Samaritan go through the motions. Don't think too quickly. Let her feel good about herself, and I might be able to get real help for us. As for the contract for Wallace Railway to build on Pleasure Town's land, I'd say that revenue is something this town sorely needs, now more than ever, not to mention the future income from the new railway stop. Respectfully, Miss Wallace, what we need is not the promise of future money. Future money will not fill bellies tonight. And my understanding is that you have yet to secure that contract with Mayor Ledoux. Well, you're not wrong. Mr. Goose, crack open that one there with a red stamp on it. The object he handed her nearly took my breath away. How in the world did she have such a bright, fresh orange? These oranges come to me thanks to a track my father laid that stretches from Florida to, well, practically my doorstep. I rerouted several crates to the nearest stop to Pleasure Town and had them expedited by courier. Please, enjoy. I took the orange from her hand. Its skin was soft and warm from the long ride. I peeled the flesh away and tore off a small morsel. Its sweet flavor burst on my tongue like a flood after a drought. I couldn't help but smile, and she smiled with me. I thought you all might enjoy a small pleasure in addition to the basic necessities. They will go a long way to lift spirits. I'm grateful for your generosity, Miss Wallace, truly. But you have yet to answer my question. Tragedy is tragedy, Elijah. You and these folks have suffered a great loss, and I am in a position to deliver some relief. If, if in return you could see your way to putting in a good word for me when the time comes, it is I who would be in your debt. And there it was. The exchange. I expected to feel tricked and cornered, but she had the supplies we desperately needed and freely gave them. She could have held them ransom until every last one of us agreed to shout her praises in the mayor's face all day and all night. But she didn't. She gave first and asked after. Still, I decided to press my luck. We have over two dozen children in the camp. Provide their age ranges and I'll have some appropriately sized clothing sent. I'll also speak with the doctor. I'm assuming he'll know best what medicines and supplies are most needed. Oh, well, yes. 
Elijah, the supplies are yours, no matter your decision. But it would be a boon to me to know whether you support what I'm trying to do for Pleasure Town. Why seek support from me? Look at me. Look at all of us. I have no power in the town. These people rely on you. You have, what, 80, 90 souls under your care? They know you want the best for them. If you support this endeavor, then they will too, and that is what we need. Strength in numbers. Your mayor must know that his neglect of this town cannot stand. Her fervor stirred in me an anger I had thought I was long too weary to summon. Yes, this abandonment could not stand. Yes, we were not invisible. Yes, we deserved to be counted. Yes, Miss Wallace. We have an agreement. The additional supplies arrived as she had promised. I admit to being skeptical right up until the moment the crates were opened. There was something about that woman that made me want to trust her, but also get as far away from her as possible. I cannot say for sure what role I played in the events that followed after our agreement, but I do know I was a stepping stone on a path I could not have predicted. Would I have made a different choice, knowing what I know now? (sighs) What's done is done. I can't take it back. I can't take any of it back. Fire tears down, but it also paves a path. Yeah, nature needs fire. Plans on it even. Clear away the old to prepare for the new. Guess that would have made us a couple of dead dry logs. Which I would say was an improvement for you. Yeah, I'd give that insult a three out of ten. Not your best is what I'm saying. I mean, a log is not that negative of an image. Stick in the mud, sure, but a log, what does that even mean? Ugh, Lord, remind me to never insult you again. This is Emily, senior producer of the show, thanking you for coming back once again and joining us for the sixth episode of season three. If you loved what you heard this week, we encourage you to leave us a rate and review on iTunes, preferably a positive one. But if you hated what you heard, feel free to send your enemies a link to our iTunes page as well. Your feedback, positive and negative, helps us bring you the best audio drama possible. You can also connect with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or find even more ways to connect by visiting www.pleasuretownshow.com. And now it's time to thank the extraordinary humans who made this episode possible. This episode of Pleasure Town was written by Keith Ecker and Gwyn Fulcher and performed by Keith Ecker, Johnny Moran, Susan Messing, and Julian Stroop, with audio design by Aaron Cahoe and Brady Guy. Our executive producers are Keith Ecker and Aaron Cahoe. Our senior producer is me, Emily Modaff. 
Our associate producers are Colin Wright, Lizzie Seidenstricker, Joe Courtney, and Brady Guy. Our staff writers are Gwyn Fulcher and Sean Paris, who is a stepping stone on a path I could not have predicted. Original music was composed and performed by River Rising's Megan Diger and Tim Hazen, and engineered by Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Pleasure Town is an ever-growing interactive narrative which relies on your creativity, your imagination, and especially your voice to expand the legend. Find out how you can join the story at pleasuretownshow.com. This has been a production of WBEZ Chicago. 